Welcome back to Lethal. Let's talk about death row inmates. This week, I'll be covering a woman that is currently on Texas death row. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited and I hope you like my new intro music. So shout out to Skane underscore music from Viber. He is so talented and he did an amazing job. So if you're starting a podcast, a YouTube channel, whatever, go ahead and head over to Fiverr. He'll really help you out. So this week I'll be covering a Texas death row inmate, Darley Lynn Routier. She was convicted of the murder of her two sons, six-year-old Devin and five-year-old Damon in her Dallas home. Before we jump right into it, I was going to talk about death row inmates' last meals. Most states give the inmates their last meal a day before they're executed. Alcohol and tobacco are usually off the table and are denied, and drugs are obviously denied as well. Some states do have restrictions when it comes to last meal requests. For instance, Florida death row inmates' last meals have to cost under $40. Oklahoma last meals have to cost under $15. And in Louisiana, the warden of the prison will usually join the inmate for their last meal. So Texas actually banned their last meal requests. This was determined September 2011. Lawrence L. Brewer ruined it for everyone. He requested an absurd amount of food. Lawrence ordered two chicken fried steaks with gravy and onions, triple patty bacon cheeseburger, a cheese omelet with ground beef, tomatoes, onions, bell peppers, and jalapenos, a bowl of fried okra with ketchup, one pound of barbecue meat with half a loaf of white bread, three fajitas, a meat lover's pizza, one pint of bluebell ice cream, a slab of peanut butter fudge with crushed peanuts, and three root beers. And he didn't eat or drink any of it. When it was served to him, he said, I'm not hungry. So now the inmates have to eat whatever is served on that specific day in the prison. So there was actually talk that he ordered all the food and didn't touch it so he could feel like he was in control of the prison system. He felt like he was manipulating the system one last time. So what do y'all think? Should death row inmates be given a last meal request even though their victims never got a last meal? I think we're able, if we're able to determine if the inmate has grown as an individual and if they're truly sorry for what they've done, sure, why not? But if the inmates show no remorse and they're not sorry, then no, I don't think so. But, you know, how are you able to determine that? So once again, I have a glass of wine and I'm ready to jump into this case. This week, I'll be covering inmate number 999-220, Darley Routier. She is currently at the Mountain View Unit in Gatesville, Texas. She has been on Texas death row for over 23 years. When I was at Texas Tech, we covered this case in one of my classes, and it's a case that you won't forget. Is Darley Routier guilty, or is an innocent woman on Texas death row? Darley was born on January 4, 1970, in Altoona, Pennsylvania. Her mother is Darley Key, and her father is Larry Peck. As a teenager, Darley, her mother, and her sister moved to Lubbock, Texas. She went to Monterey High School and graduated in 1988. She met a boy named Darren while she was in high school, so she was a 15-year-old head over heels for a 17-year-old boy. After they graduated, they got married in August 1988. They bought a new house in Rollett, Texas. This is a suburb right outside of Dallas. This was a suburb that was very nice. No crime ever happened here. Their house was actually $130,000, and they were big spenders. 
Um, they bought a Jag, a boat. They had everything. Darlie actually got a breast augmentation in 1992, and she wore a lot of flashy jewelry and clothes. She was always dressed up nicely. Dallas is actually known for this kind of bougie lifestyle, so she was just like any other Dallas woman. So this is actually really important. This will be used against her later in her story. The couple had their first child. His name was Devin Routier. He was born on June 14, 1989. Soon after, they popped out another one. His name was Damon Routier. He was born on February 19, 1991. And their youngest child was named Drake. He was born October 18, 1995. They were a picture-perfect family. Darlie was a stay-at-home mother and a wife. The neighborhood kids loved her. You know how everyone always had that one house they loved to go to as a kid? This was the house. She knew how to spoil all the kids. She always had popsicles and candies. So this was the house to go to as a kid. Unfortunately, their life would change forever. At 2.31 in the morning on June 6, 1996, Darlie called 911 hysterical. That was the first part of the 911 call. She said, I quote, somebody broke into our house. They just stabbed me and my children. And she continued to say, my little boys are dying. Darlie then told the dispatcher that she found a knife on the floor and the 911 dispatcher told her not to touch anything. Darlie responded back and said that she had already touched it and picked it up and said, I quote, we could have gotten the prints, maybe. So I'm gonna go ahead and play that one next for you. Before all of this, the night started like any other. Darlie and her two boys were downstairs, the boys lying on the floor watching TV while their mother was relaxing on the couch. Darren, Darlie's husband, slept upstairs with their newborn Drake that night. Darren heard Darlie screaming in the middle of the night, so he ran downstairs to the den and saw a horrific scene. His two boys were soaked in blood, and Darlie was hysterical on the phone with 911 and covered in blood as well. Darren first ran to Devin and saw two huge lacerations on his chest. The six-year-old was lifeless and had already passed away. Darren then moved to Damon, the five-year-old. He was still holding on to life. He was gasping for air. After assessing the two sons, he started to perform CPR on Devin. Since there was no pulse, he thought maybe he could help him. The first officer at the scene was David Wadwell. He had never seen anything like this scene before. A matter of fact, the police department didn't have a lot of experience when it came to homicides. The officer instructed Darley to place towels under Damon and apply pressure to the wounded areas. The officer reported that she had ignored him and found this he found this to be odd because you know, why wasn't she helping? But I'm sure she was also in shock. I truly believe no one knows how they would react if they were put under this much pressure. As more police arrived at the scene, they started to walk through the house and follow the blood trail inside. They noticed one of the screens on the windows had been slashed down the middle. They found a butcher knife covered in blood on the kitchen counter. They noticed how there was a how there was jewelry and a purse on the kitchen counter that had not been taken or moved. It was unmoved, which they found to be strange. Why would someone break in but not attempt to steal anything? 
When the paramedics arrived on the scene, they were examining the boys and noted there were large knife gashes on their chest. The gashes were so deep that it had penetrated and hit the lungs of the boys. Devin, the six-year-old boy, had died on the scene, and the five-year-old was barely holding on to life. He died on the way to the hospital at the Baylor Medical Center. Their paramedics did as much as they could, but it was too late. Darley had bruises and cuts on her neck and arms. As paramedics were assessing her wounds, she told police she fell asleep on the couch and woke up to a man standing over her, and she started to scream and fight them off. She was very vague when she was giving her description. She said the attacker was medium to tall in height and was dressed in all black. After the police interview, Darley was taken to the hospital. Once Darley arrived at the hospital, she was rushed into surgery. The police noted that Darley's cuts were superficial, which raised some eyebrows because the boy's gashes were so deep, but Darley's were not. It's almost like they were self-inflicted. As the investigators were walking through the scene, they noticed a couple weird things. As we know, on the 911 call, Darley had told the dispatcher that she had picked up the knife and moved it, and the police thought it was weird that she had mentioned that on the phone. Something else is the Routiers had a dog that was not friendly around strangers. The dog snapped at one of the investigators when they were walking through the house, and the police were curious to know where the dog was during the attack. The investigators didn't think that Darley's story matched up to the crime scene. Next, I'm going to go over the crime scene and what caught police's attention even more. The sink was spotless in the kitchen, but the countertops were covered with blood spatters, so the police thought someone had cleaned the sink. The investigators tested the sink with the chemical compound luminol. If there was blood detected, the sink would, be, would light up. When the sink was tested, the sink lit up. Next, police found the window with a slit in the screen but there was no sign of someone forcibly going in or out of the screen. The screen's frame could easily be removed, so police started to think this was a setup. Why wouldn't someone just remove the screen if it would be easier to do that than having to make a slit and going in and out? Also, the mulch under the window was undisturbed. There were no footprints. There was also undisturbed dust on the windowsill, which seemed unlikely if someone was entering or exiting out through this way. There was no blood drips or stains outside of the house. The investigators figured the slayer would be dripping in the victim's blood, but there was no sign outside of the house. The police also noticed there was a, blood foot, a bloody footprint in Darley's kitchen with broken glass on top of it. This showed investigators that these items were dropped after, not before the attack. Also, there was Darley's jewelry and her purse that were on top of the kitchen counter and they were not taken. The investigators said they suspected that someone had committed this house that was already inside of it. There was no intruder, and they suspected it was Darley. When Darley was in the hospital, staff took note that her actions didn't match up to a grieving mother. Darley was cold and didn't cry. She kept saying over and over again, who did this to my sons? And she kept holding on to their pictures. And staff thought this was pretty forced of her but honestly no one knows how they would react in this kind of situation everyone's emotions are so different darley was released from the hospital three days after the event took place so she was able to attend her son's wake eight days after the attack it was devin's birthday darley had a birthday celebration at the cemetery for her son on the footage you can see darley smacking on her gum and spraying silly string on her son's grave 
This really incriminated Darlie. Police saw this video and didn't see a grieving mother. They thought the actions were very inappropriate. But honestly, it you know, it's not that inappropriate. Everyone's going to have very different grieving stages. And, you know, this was a way for her to grieve for her son's death. And the silly string wasn't even brought by her. Her sister brought the silly string because she knew her nephew loved silly string. And Darlie just wanted to have a birthday celebration and make them happy even though they weren't here anymore. And I know if something like this happened to me, my mom would have a birthday celebration and literally do the most. Four days after the birthday celebration, Darlie was arrested for the murder of her two children. Darlie was indicted June 28th on two counts of capital murder. The judge issued a gag order for the defense and prosecutor. This means they were not able to talk about the case to the media. Darlie's court-appointed lawyer requested that the trial be moved out of Dallas, so the trial was moved to Kerrville, Texas. The state prosecutor announced that they would be seeking the death penalty. The family came together and put everyone's money together to get Darlie a good lawyer. The DA decided to try Darlie for only one child instead of both. This was in case she was proven or proven innocent, they could try again for the second child. So they had two shots at this. The chief prosecutor painted a picture of Darlie to the jury. He painted her out to be a selfish, materialistic woman. The prosecutor stated that Darlie's motive to murder her two sons was because of her financial difficulties. She was a materialistic woman that loved to spend money and feared that her extravagant lifestyle was going to soon come to an end, unless extensive measures were taken. Her two boys, Damon and Devin, had life insurances taken out on them, which came out to $5,000 each, so a total of $10,000 which this isn't even going to be enough money to cover the funeral cost. The prosecutor started by talking about the differences between the boy's wounds compared to Darlie's. He suggested Darlie's superficial wounds were self-inflicted. The police officers on scene and the EMTs were all called to court. They were questioned about Darlie's condition. One EMT said she never asked how her sons were in the ambulance ride to the hospital. Investigator James Crone, Cron, detailed the crime scene and said he believed someone in the house was responsible for the murder. Since there was a lack of evidence outside of the house and a lack of evidence that an intruder was even present. An expert was also called to the stand and agreed with the investigators theory that there was no intruder. They believed there would have been a trail of blood outside of the home. And an FBI agent was also called to the stand, and he said he didn't believe an intruder was responsible either because of all of Darlie's jewelry and her purse being out on the kitchen counter. And nothing was taken. It was untouched. Something else used in court against Darlie was her diary that they found. A month before the slang happened, she wrote, I quote, Devin, Damon, and Drake, I hope you will forgive me for what I'm about to do. My life has been such a hard fight for a long time, and I just can't find the strength to keep fighting anymore. I love you three more than anything else in the world, and I want all three of you to be happy, healthy, and I don't want you to see a miserable person every time you look at me, end quote. This was odd and showed that she was not being level-headed around this time. A medical examiner talked about Darlie's injuries. He stated that the wound on her neck came within two millimeters of her corroded artery and was not consistent with a self-inflicted injury. The gash that was on her arm was to the bone, so there was no way this was self-inflicted either. But something that didn't help Darlie's case was that 
was that there was blood found on the back of Darley's shirt. Tom Bavell testified in court and stated it was cast off from the blood spatter. So he said when Darley was stabbing the boys numerous times, she raised a knife over her head, which caused the blood spatter from the stabbing. One major point the defense had was a bloody sock found 75 yards away from the house. If it was staged there, there would have been no time to take the sock to that spot. Then call 911 and then have them arrive when one of the boys was still alive. Darley was actually on the phone with the 911 dispatcher for 5 minutes and 44 seconds. Damon could have only lived for 8 to 9 minutes with his injuries. The paramedics arrived with him still alive, so this doesn't fit in the timeline for a staging. Another main point that was talked about in court was a 911 phone call. Darley talks about how she picked up the knife and how they could have possibly gotten prints off of it. Police saw this as very incriminating because they didn't think a concerned mother would even have this thought at this point. But who knows, you know, maybe she watches a lot of crime TV and this really did cross her mind. But police saw this as incriminating and so did the jury. Another main point that was talked about in court was the bread knife in the kitchen. The fibers on the bread knife found in the kitchen was tested and the fibers matched the fibers on the window screen which indicated that this was most likely a setup because why would an intruder come in, use a bread knife, go slice open the screen, go back, put the bread knife on the counter, and then leave? They think an intruder would have just pulled off the screen or have taken the knife with them, so this was also incriminating to them. On February 4th, 1997, Darley was convicted of murdering her son, Damon. The jury asked to watch the Silly String video nine times, and after eight hours came to a unanimous verdict of guilty. She now sits on Texas death row. So at this point, I don't know if you think if she's guilty or innocent, but we're going to start looking at some stuff that was brought to light. The defense attorney found 30,000 mistakes on the trail transcript. The DA was hoping bringing this to light would bring a new trial, but the judge denied. So now we're really going to crack down on some of this evidence that is going to show Darley's innocence. An unknown fingerprint was found on the windowsill that did not belong to anyone in the family. 75 yards away from the house, there was a bloody sock that was found. It was tested and Damon and Devin's blood was found on the sock. Darley actually had fatal injuries. Her wounds were not superficial like they had stated. Like I said, the gash on her neck was only two millimeters away from the corroded artery. The necklace she was wearing at the time had to be surgically removed from her neck, but is probably the reason that kept her alive. Also, there was a gash on her arm that was to the bone. There's no way she would have been able to inflict that kind of injury to herself. Something else. The news also reported that she was having a birthday party for her son, Devin. The video showed her smacking her gum and spraying silly string, uh, silly string over the grave. But of course, the news didn't show you everything. So there was a two-hour service for the boys before the incident occurred. This was never shown to the jury. The video showed appropriate behavior. This video is really what incriminated her with her smacking her gum, making her look like she was being inappropriate. But before all of that, she had a two-hour memorial service for her sons that was never showed to the jury, which that's just not fair. 
Also, do you remember the fibers on the bread knife that I talked about? Yeah. Well, her lawyers tested seven random knives and four had the same chemical consistency that was found on the bread knife in her house. Her attorney at the time of the trial never contradicted prosecutors' arguments at all. There were also three fingerprints in the house that were never identified. Darlie and Darren had to get the boys exhumed so their prints could be examined and compared. Their fingerprints were not able to be lifted and the DNA would be the next step to test, but the court had denied that. So do y'all want to hear something even crazier? There was actually a life insurance policy on Darlie for $250,000 on Darlie. Darren, her husband, was a beneficiary. Darren had actually tried to plan an insurance scam. He suggested that someone needed to rob his house so he could collect insurance money. He had already committed one insurance scam before with their car. This was found out by a private investigator. Darren was also suspected to have been involved with the murder of his two boys. When all this information was relayed over to Darlie, she had no idea that Darren was plotting a break-in and she felt so betrayed. It gets even crazier. A secret source in the DA's office came forward and talked to Barbara Davis. She wrote a book called Precious Angels. She believed Darlie was guilty until she spoke with this source. This source said major evidence was moved around Pictures were completely out of sequence, and there was a secret video no one had seen of the two-hour-long vigil. She saw the pictures of the wounds, the bruises Darley had. The trial would have been so different if all of this would have been shown in the trial to the jury. Darley's case is currently on hold and pending DNA testing. The blood fingerprints can help show that an intruder was in the house. Also, you get three appeals in Texas if you're on death row. Darlie has already used two appeals. After three appeals are up, she will be given an execution date. The only reason she was convicted was because of Susan Smith. Oh shit, you don't know who Susan Smith is? Well, let me give you the rundown of this chick. Susan Smith was convicted of murdering her two children in 1994, so around the time Darlie was accused of her crime. Darlie has been referred to as the Dallas Susan Smith, but she is so far from that. She is not Susan Smith. So Susan was falsely, she falsely claimed that she was carjacked by a black man and her two children were in the car when this happened. So she said they were kidnapped. But later she cracked under pressure and confessed that she buckled them in their car seat when they were asleep, drove to a lake and drove them down a ramp into the lake and let them drown. And it's so sad that they were asleep because they woke up as they were drowning. One of her kids were three years old and the other one was 14 months old. By the way, this crazy lady is eligible for parole November 2024. So Susan Smith is really one of the reasons why Darlie was convicted of this because they saw that a mother was capable of killing her children. So Darlie was capable of killing her her children as well. But... There, no, I don't think any of the evidence is really pointing to Darlie. I think she was given an unfair trial. Also, just in case, if you're wondering, Darren and Darlie divorced June 2011. It was a mutual decision, and Darren still believes that she is innocent. I actually wrote Darlie, and I'm hoping to hear from her. I asked her if she thought if her ex-husband had any involvement in the case. As for her youngest son, 
Drake. He is actually still alive. He has visited his mother at the prison since he was little. Sadly, they have never been able to hug or touch since the glass separates them. I didn't know that they weren't able to have contact at all. So he's actually close to his mother, and he said he had to tell his mother over the phone that he was diagnosed with leukemia, which was very heartbreaking for him. Darley says Drake has kept her spirits high in prison, and last time that I read, he was healthy and fighting and living living the good life. So Darley actually has a website. It's called fordarleyroutier.org. You should go check it out. It has her case, her 911 call, pictures of her wounds. It gives updates on her case. So, you know, what do you think? Is she innocent? Is an innocent woman on death row? Or do you think she's guilty? Well, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please rate and review. Go follow my Insta, lethal underscore podcast. And feel free to shoot me an email at lethal.tc, as in true crime podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to tune in next Wednesday for a new case and a new inmate. I'll be covering a new death row state. All the information used in my podcast came from the following sources. Wikipedia, NPR, Texas Tribune, Death Row Stories, Murderpedia. Thanks so much and I can't wait to see you next week.